Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 123 of Control the Controllables. Today, we have one of the two brothers who brought rock and roll to tennis. If you're not going to that practice court after you double faulted at 5-4 in the third, 15-30 while you're serving for the match, and you blew it, then you're not going to make it. It doesn't matter how many, you know, resources, coaches, how many federations are behind you or agents you have. And that was the difference for us is that we just never quit. We just kept on looking for ways to get better. And that was older brother Luke Jensen himself and Murphy Jensen won the French Open title in 1993. He goes on to have a fantastic career. It could have been better on the court, but they used their difficulties off the court to a greater good now in life. Luke's also been a tennis coach, and many of you will know him as the head coach of the New York Empire, who were the winners of World Team Tennis 2020. What an unbelievable character Luke is. From the word go in this conversation, he put a big smile on my face. Sit back, enjoy, be entertained, but also take the strong, profound messages from this podcast. I'm going to pass you over to Luke Jensen. So Luke Jensen, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Finally, you get me on. I can't believe, and I'm also psyched you got me on before Murphy because he talks a lot of trash. And I want to get my version of the real story out before he brings in some fake news. It's it's great to have you on. I I actually going back to, to my very mediocre tennis career. I played some doubles and I was always looked up to you guys. I, I loved <laughs> I loved watching your energy out there, you know, and, and and certainly it kind of changed my mind on what I thought of doubles. You guys brought a certain cool to tennis, that's for sure. Thank you. Well that's probably why because you looked up to us, your career was mediocre. <laughs> you know, you could have looked up to the Woodies. You know, they won seven Wimbledon titles in a row. So but again, you, you looked at the Jensen brothers and you got that level of, you know, mediocrity. <laughs> Hi, you won, you won a grand slam. You can't call that <laughs> mediocre. Well, it was during, before the war and, you know, not many people signed up. We were just touring Europe on one of these tourist visas and it was like, sign up and they gave us a trophy. It was fantastic. <laughs> Well, it, it's a big honor to speak to you, Luke. And I want to get your story. I want to hear about you guys. I know you've got a, a big tennis family with your sisters as well. But I, I can't get you on without getting your opinion of what's been going on at the French Open. We've had Naomi Osaka pulling out for reasons of mental health and, you know, not doing press conferences. And, you know, we've had a big drama there. And then we've had Roger Federer pulling out the event because he's 
preparing for Wimbledon. What what's your what's your take being on the French Open so far? Yeah, it's I love these Grand Slams because the focus. You know, we have four World Cups, we have four Super Bowls in our calendar year, and it starts with the Australian Open. And there's always some type of drama at every one of these. Something happens. You got a lot of you know players from around the world at you know different stages of their career. Um, Naomi Osaka to me is fascinating. I've known her for a very long time. I remember watching her and her older sister, uh, Mari, playing the 10,000 ITF Pro Circuit events when they were, you know, 14 and 16. And they weren't phenoms or anything. They were they're out there losing in qualies and just trying to get their games together. So it's been fun watching her e- evolve as a player. And she just burst onto the scene, winning Indian Wells and then went away and came back and won 2018 U.S. Open and had that whole thing with the Serena blow up. And it's just been fascinating watching her career and, and go about all these pressures. Osaka specifically, and it's a, it's a deeper issue because mental health, and we talk about this as coaches to our players all the time, um, how important mental toughness is. And we always teach mental toughness and how you, how you deal with adversity and how you get yourself off off the ground after a loss or how you deal with a deficit. But rarely do we coach players with uh, the thoughts of how you deal with prosperity. How do you deal with a situation where you're up five, three and a third and you're serving it out? And those are the real pressure moments. How do you deal when you are, in Osaka's case, most dominant player on the planet, you know, winning the US Open, winning uh, the Australian Open, and I think dealing with prosperity, $55 million in uh, earnings in 2020, uh, $35 million in uh, 2019. It's an Olympic year in Japan. She represents Japan. Um, she's the face of the Olympic Games in Tokyo. All those pressures and try to understand that is just, I think, it's outside of anybody's really realm except for maybe Roger Federer or Serena Williams a Nadal or a Djokovic. And so my recommendation is have a conversation with those goats. How do you handle the press? How do I navigate? Because she is the next massive supernova in our sport. So it's so, so nice to get that perspective on it, Luke. I think, you know, to get that, to get that level of depth, because like you say, it's got to be quite lonely to be, yep. to be that person who almost people are starting to talk about being, taking the whole of the WTA tour on her shoulders. And, yeah. and, and I think what we don't know, certainly in Europe and possibly in America as well, is just quite how big of a, a star she is in Asia and how big she is in her country. I remember when Lee Na won her Grand Slam, yeah. you know, it, it all completely kicked off. And she obviously had her, her husband and family around her. Now, Naomi's yeah. only 22, 23 years of age. It's, it's a hell of a lot to take on her shoulders. But if I just kind of sidestep over, you mentioned the GOAT, Roger Federer. Going, This is probably the first time I've felt a little bit of disappointment from Roger in his whole career, where I've thought yeah. there's maybe a better way of going about that than basically saying, I got my matches, guys, but now I'm heading off to London to get ready to try and go and win one last Wimbledon. Yeah, you know, the one thing is, I will say, he... He made it very clear going into the French Open that he didn't think he was going to win it. 
you know, especially after coming off of what Osaka was going through and the tough question, Roger is, is the, is the poster child of how you handle the press, how you handle pressure, how realistic and honest and open he is with his, his prep. I've had five knee surgeries. So I, I know getting up after a tough day on the courts, whether it's clay or hard courts, what bad knees feel like. And I promise you for a guy who hadn't played a best of five set major since the 2019 Australian open, he's walking into the French open. You can play all the warm-up tournaments, two out of threes you want. That's nice for anybody that tries to figure out, listen, it's best of five sets. Can't be that tough. They're used to it. You're not, you only play best of five sets in Davis cup and at the majors. So, if you think it's easy, go and play just three sets straight. Don't even play five. Just go and play three sets straight and then try to do it the next day. I'm telling you, it's tough. If you're playing yeah, someone who's the worthy opponent, it's not easy. And for a guy who's 40 this year, I'm telling with two knee surgeries, he has to be realistic because in the end, we all know the big number, the big thing he's chasing is that Grand Slam number because time is not on his side. It's not. The U.S. Open is not the same since they put the roof on it. It's slower. It's more humid. means the balls are slower, which means it's not a good situation for Federer. Look at his results at the U.S. Open since they built the roof. So he's, his only real shot is Wimbledon. That's his best shot. But the bottom line is, he is an old dude playing a young man's sport. So let's put you on the spot. How many more Grand Slams has Roger Federer got in him in terms of playing the Grand Slams? And then how many wins, if any, does he have left in the locker? You know, to me, I really think, and again, I I, I love the dude. I love the off-court human being as well as the on-court presence. I I could give you so many stories of how humble this guy is, how real he is. There, there really hasn't been anyone like him in my lifetime. Rod Laver is the closest. Roger is everything in perspective. He's got his, his personal life in perspective, his professional life in perspective, and he knows exactly where he is in the grand scheme of things. And to me, if he gets two more out of it, the tennis gods have blessed him. He's going to end up third. Djokovic isn't going to stop. He's the best player of all time, all court player of all time. Nadal is the best on red clay, you know, and he's making a he's making an unbelievable case to be GOAT. I just hope his back holds up. I hope his knees hold up. That's why I'm not really you know, concerned that he had to pull the plug. If it was a straight set match, even if it was a four or five set match, but those tiebreaker sets, he played three tiebreaker sets in a, in a seven, five set in the fourth. He was shot. I would love to see video of him getting out of bed the next morning and just walk into the bathroom to brush his teeth. Cause that would tell you everything that he doesn't need to play this game. He wants to play this game. He knows the end is much closer to him than the beginning. And to me, you have to savor every swing from that dude right now because 
as long as he, you know, can play, he will play. Very good. And, and, and I think it's a fascinating few weeks ahead. And I think it's a fascinating couple of years ahead. I fear that this might be the last year that Roger plays, but like you say, let's savor every minute of that. We could talk about Roger Federer, we could talk about Naomi Saka for an hour, Luke, but I've got you on this podcast because I want to know about you and I want to know about, about your tennis and I want to know about what makes you tick. I want to start with, you know, coming from a family of NCAA champions, you know, boys and girls, uh, Grand Slam champions, and all four of you, your twin brother and then your your sisters as well, all playing on the tours themselves, how did that happen from one family? Yeah, I, I tell you, we we were blessed. We had, you know, I, I always call parents the uh, your life coaches. They're the ones that are going to be with you no matter what. They're the ones who set the tone, attitude, effort. Uh, we were not raised to be tennis players at all. There is a bigger and deeper story to that. But uh, we grew up on a, a Christmas tree farm in northern Michigan middle of nowhere, lots of, lots of snow, lots of bad weather. The closest indoor court was about 60 miles away. And so my dad played for a short period of time for the New York football giants. It's American football. My mom uh, was an athlete, six foot two uh, basketball player, but it was before really title nine and women's sports got a, got a opportunity to really compete. And they, they were children of parents who, who grew up in the depression, World War One, World War Two, had a really tough existence in life. My my mother, uh, first generation American, parents are from Lithuania. My dad's parents grew up way up northern Michigan, and and so really money was tight. Opportunities for athletics wasn't even existed. So we came in at the right time. Parents wanted us to be athletes. The boys were going to be football players. And the girls were going to be gymnasts. And then all of a sudden, tennis kind of came in the rotation as part of the many sports we played. And all of a sudden, tennis was the, was the one sport that glued us together as a family because it's generational. My grandparents could play. My parents could play. My sisters and my brother and I could play all together at the same tournaments. we travel. It took us places. It was real easy to figure out, I mean, tennis is easy, honestly. You just put in more balls in play than your opponent. I don't care if you hit hard or with spin, if you hit high, you hit low, you come to the net. If you put more balls in, make fewer errors than your opponent, you win. It's a real simple game. And that was kind of the genesis of, wow, look at the opportunities for all four siblings to see the world through the game of tennis. And so my dad became a high school tennis coach. There was an opportunity in my local hometown and he started going to you know coaches clinics and got to see Arthur Ashe talk about tennis and Stan Smith and Chris Everett and uh you they would just inspire this dream of tennis of, of Wimbledon and back in the late 70s tennis was going technicolor you know I mean Wimbledon was always the granddaddy and that's the traditional one and it went live in 1979 and the young Luke Jensen and Murphy Jensen we're watching Wimbledon live for the first time. So it's, you know, two o'clock in Great Britain and it's uh, nine o'clock and we're watching live Bjorn Borg, 
going for his fourth Wimbledon uh, in a row against Roscoe Tanner, the American big lefty server. And it was just so cool. Tennis was cool, cool attitudes, cool, you know, uh, personalities. Borg was the ice man. And then you had McEnroe, Connors, Everett, Navratilova. You had just so many extraordinary personalities and talents and contrasting styles. And tennis just was the one that grabbed our family. And it was our family sport. It was the one that got us out of a very small town of about 8,000 people to see the world. And so that was kind of our story. And then junior tennis and college tennis and followed by pro tennis. And what was the, what was the age gap between the, the boys and the girls? Yeah. So my, my brother and I are not twins. See, a lot of people, um, ah. I have twin sisters that are six years younger. Okay. I'm, I'm the oldest of four of my brothers, two and a half years younger. So oh, okay. when we started playing, my sisters were on tour before we were on tour as a team. And so everyone had heard about these Jensen twins. And so when we starting, started having success in 93, they said, oh, that must be those Jensen twins we've been hearing about. But we're the one thing I'm very proud of to this day, because it was always about family and doing it as a family and traveling the world as a family, succeeding as a family, was not winning the French Open, which is extraordinary accomplishment but all four of us played in the same Grand Slam in 1996. Wow. And that was the Australian Open. And, and to have that accomplishment, and the only family in the history of tennis, and you know Wimbledon's been going on since the late 1890s, to be the only family to really do that is really extraordinary to me to have Incredible. You know, all four siblings to play in a main draw of a major. Is it, now, the, the Black family with Byron Black, Wayne Black, Cara Black, yeah. I think that's even more extraordinary from the country of Zimbabwe yeah. on a farm somewhere in Zimbabwe. All three of those uh, players ended up being number one in the world in doubles, I think is even more extraordinary that and they should be in the Hall of Fame with those accomplishments. And do you think with stories like that, so if we take you guys, the Jensen's and we and we take the blacks, I guess people yep. could could study. <laughs> to could study every aspect of that from from what you ate to how you spoke to each other to how yeah. you acted and do, do you think there is a a common theme there that people can learn from or do you just think it was a perfect storm of lots of things well i i think tennis specifically you have to have parents that are committed to the journey committed to the commitment it's always going to be a family sport the Changs, you know, Carl Chang and then Michael Chang. Agassiz, you know, Andre was one of, you know, all of his siblings played. The Sampras's, all, you know, whether they yeah. ended up winning Grand Slams, they all played college, they all played somewhat pro tennis. To me, the big secret weapon in our sport, I love Judy Murray. Judy Murray, how she did it, again, awesome. her determination and will to be, you know, such a driving force for her boys from Scotland. And, and again, to allow, you know, Andy and her, and her, uh, and Jamie to go out and explore and really conquer when, you know, really British tennis was kind of, you know, living off of Tim Hemman and, you know, those years and, you know, Andy's done some extraordinary things. It's all about family. You can't go, you'll go to every one of the greats of all time. And there's always a family like Chris Everett 
Tracy Austin, all of her siblings played uh, the pros. Chris Everett's family played at a very high level. Y you can't get around it. It's a family sport. It crosses over so many generations. It's a sport of a lifetime. No. And if you see the common thread, it starts with life coaches, the parents that make it happen, that instill and support the dream. And, and, and on that, though, Luke, so what? let's take the four of you. I guess this happens a little bit if we talk about in federations or in academies. You might kind of start with a group of four, but yeah. nat naturally people develop at different stages. You know, some people need a little bit more resource. Some people need to travel a bit more. One person tends to do a little bit better. You know, the nuances of that and, and giving that unconditional support not just in terms of love and emotion but in terms of finance travel time how how was that managed in your family because i would imagine you would have all been at different stages at different times and maybe one was excelling a little bit more than the other yeah i mean i being two and a half years older kind of leading the way then murphy was kind of right behind me and then the twins really benefited from a lot of like trial and error my parents were you know, just honestly, middle class, they were phys ed teachers. So if I made a mistake, Murphy was able, my parents were able to course correct and go, okay, let's not make that mistake again. And then the sisters, our sisters being six years younger than me benefited from a lot of learning through the process and not to take shortcuts, but also not to take detours into dark alleys and, and career choices and bad coaching decisions and things. And so how it really worked was when I went off to college, Murphy was still working on his junior stuff. And so was my Rachel and Rebecca. And then when I turned pro Murphy went to college. So there are all these stages of our development, but I know specifically when I went to the pro circuit, it was about making money to support the rest of the family to, to give them the opportunity to chase their dreams. And then we had the family motto, which is Jensen's never quit. So we never quit on e ourselves or each other. And we were going to just create the opportunity of effort. And we could lose. Uh, people would beat us. But we were never defeated. And I think the number one thing that causes players, whether they, uh, you know, to me, do they have talent? Can they make it? This and that. I hear it all the time. What do you think of this 12-year-old? What do you think of this 16-year-old? I said, you know, it's not about talent. At some point, the kid's going to say, make a determination. Do I still want to go through the suffering and the sacrifice it takes to become a professional tennis player? Because you're going to lose a lot before you win a little. And you're going to lose and you're going to get your head beat in. Do you pick yourself up after that loss and you go straight to a practice court and fix what's broken? Do you fix your second serve? Do you fix your forehand volley? Whatever lets you down in that match, or do you go off and get a latte, or do you go off and check your Instagram, or post something on social media? Because I'm telling you, if you're not going to that practice court after you double faulted at 5-4 in the third, 15-30 while you're serving for the match, and you blew it, then you're not going to make it. It doesn't matter how many you know resources, coaches, how many federations are behind you, or agents you have, if you're not dedicated to the craft, like you see with Roger and Rafa and Djokovic, the Serenas, they are working on their game every single day, whether it's physically, whether it's mentally, 
whether it's tactically, they are still grabbing for more performance. And that was the difference for us is that we just never quit. We just kept on looking for ways to get better. And then all of a sudden you roll into uh, 1993 at the French Open and, you know, you pull out a couple of matches, 12-10 in the third, down match points. You pull out a couple more matches out of the fire that you should have lost. And then, you know, all of a sudden you just keep grinding and you just, you pull it out and you're holding the trophy. And it's just every single day you're chopping the wood, chopping the wood. And the players that choose to put that ax down and stop doing the job and, and putting in the time and doing the work, those are the ones who end up quitting and not reaching their full potential. It really hits me. You know, I, I'm a... I'm a, I'm a team guy. You know, I played, I was, a, I'm an LSU Tiger. I was at US oh. College. I, I absolutely loved my college time. Whenever there's a team event, it's, and, and I'm going to get onto world team tennis in a little bit, you know, which I know you've had so much success in, but it's, it, it, it always hits me that tennis is such a challenging sport because you are on your own and all right, you can create a team around you. But I think as human beings, we, we buy into being part of a tribe. We like, we like that feeling of having people by our side and, and just listening to you, Luke, it sounds like the Jensen tribe, you know, offered just so much support for each other that you were, you were never just playing for yourself you know, there was always a bigger purpose in in why you were on the court and, and what you were doing, which which obviously led to such a successful tennis careers for, for all four of you to have within the family. I don't, I don't know if that's how you guys looked at it. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a real savage sport. And that's what I, in talking about families, I didn't even talk about, you know, the Bryan brothers. And then, of course, the greatest, story in my opinion in tennis history which is the Williams sisters yeah. where they came from what their father and mother decided to do with their two daughters that was their way out and they had to really become savages because they had no means they had to do it all on their own and they they only had each other to to really believe in this dream when no one else believed that a couple of girls from inner city Los Angeles with no money and no resources and no facilities, no coaching could do it. And not only did they do it, they did it to such an extraordinary, they changed the way we view the game. If you look at the, the levels of players, um, minorities in the sport, whether it's at the juniors, at the collegiate level, at the professional level, you see African-Americans from, from my country all over those landscapes, whether they become Grand Slam champions or not, the Madison Keys, the Sloan Stevenses, the Taylor Townsends. I mean, I could go on and on. The Tiafos are playing because they're inspired by that, that journey yeah. of the Williams sisters. For us, Absolutely. we understood right away. I, I still get very emotional when I watch my nieces and nephews who play. And I watch juniors that go out there. Because when they walk out there with that bag and that water jug, they're going to get cheated. They got to call their own score. They don't have a referee. There's no coaching. There's no scorekeeper. There's no teammates out there to substitute when you're having a bad moment to just calm you down. You got to deal with all that. No other sport puts you through that. Even golf, they give you a caddy. Boxing, you have a, a cup man in the corner, a trainer on the between rounds to go to. Tennis, you are all by yourself to deal with all of that. And if you somehow survive it, 
and the scar tissue is thick enough to cover up those wounds, those deep emotional wounds that are now really, really uh, in the spotlight now with this mental health uh, awareness uh, with Naomi Osaka. And I, I can get into that because it's very personal. I found we had the, our 28th anniversary of winning the French uh, a few days ago, uh, June 5th, uh, when we won back in 93. And 27 years of, uh, after that, when I, Murphy and I were up in Alaska fishing last year in 2020 during a COVID and we were up there and we love salmon fishing and everything. And I don't know how we even got onto it. And he's been sober now for 15 years. And um, he talks about openly his, his addictions and his substance abuse. And he's committed to a clean life and committed to helping others and serving others. It's ironic. His best shot in tennis was his serve. And now his calling in life is to serve others, people that are struggling with substance abuse. And he talked about how, I don't know how we even got onto it. I, I said, you know, I'm, I'm holding the trophy and I'm thinking, let's go win Wimbledon. Let's go. We, we've proven to the, ourselves in the world that we can win Grand Slams. Let's go dominate. On the other side of the trophy, he's saying to himself, this is his first French Open. He had never played the French before. Wow. And he's going, oh, I stink. I don't deserve it. Everybody says I shouldn't be here. I'm just, my brothers, you know, threw me a bone. Um, I'm not that good. He had some, like, how do you win a Grand Slam in a sport where nobody can give you anything? You have to earn it. You have to make the shots. You got to make the serve. And even in the in our photo, he still has a ball in his pocket from match point while we're holding the trophy, which means he got his first serve in. He served it out. No one yeah. gave it to him. And yet the mental trigger was he didn't think he was worthy of the accomplishment. Wow. Well, I'm thinking I, I'm inches away holding this, this monumental effort. He's got some serious, you know, mental health issues. And it's the same thing when I hear Osaka talk about press conferences and, and pressure and her clay court record and all that's like, holy God, it doesn't matter how many grand slams you win or how much money you win, how much you accomplish. If you're not right upstairs, you're jacked up. And I learned this, what he was thinking about. <laughs> I mean, I learned this 27 years after the fact. I had no idea he was going through that. And I'm right next to him. I'm with him every single day. Yeah. I had no idea he was struggling with drugs and alcohol until it was too late and I couldn't help. And he needed some real help, some professional help. So going back to the Osaka situation, we don't know what's going on through her, you know, prism, her walking in her shoes, the pressures and all that stuff. But for her to come out and be public about it was extraordinary because I didn't know what my brother's going through all of that until it was too late, until his game had deteriorated and, and he needed real professional help that continues to this day. It's every day um, those those mental exercises to keep him above water, to keep him above ground, to be perfectly honest. And for Naomi to come out as a young adult and say, you know, there are real issues here and I need help. I need to step away from tennis to get this right. Shows a certain maturity and awareness of what's going on. And hopefully she does get that help 
because I know the game needs her, but first needs her to be happy inside. Absolutely. And I really want to pick up on this point, Luke, because it's something on the podcast, we've had mental health awareness weeks. You know, it's something that's very close to our heart. And and, and we had Iga Fontex, sports psychologist on last week, talking as well about the Naomi Saka situation, but also mental health in, in general. And it's Naomi Osaka coming out and telling her story. If we forget tennis for a second, that's potentially saved thousands and thousands of lives. You know, for somebody to actually have it normalized that this superstar that we see on TV is going through what she's going through will give strength to so many other people, open up conversations, have have people. So it, for, for our listeners listening in, I think it would be really powerful for us to understand a little bit more about Murphy's story and about, about what happened. And obviously you being the closest person to him and not recognizing it, when did you start to see the signs? And then looking back, what maybe could have been different? If you don't mind sharing his story with us, that would be great to hear. Yeah, you know, Murphy is been very open with this and that's part of it is sharing his story to people that are going through it right now um and how he has been able to make a daily attack how he was so focused on his serves or his ground strokes he is very focused on his mental health um and doing all the reading and all the steps every day that keeps him keeps him upright and keeps him focused uh, you, he's actually uh, working now full time for a tech company that helps people in recover. In recover, it's called We Connect. W E Connect. We Connect, and you can look it up and Google it. He talks openly about. Uh, he did a thing in the United States on Tennis Channel about uh, his story. And so, going back to '93, I mean, he he couldn't really do anything. He didn't have any money. So, you know, if there was anything really there with substance abuse or drinking and drugs, I mean, he didn't have any money. He just was trying to make a living being a professional tennis player. Well, that all changed June 5th, 1993, when you, you're making a huge check for winning one tournament and now endorsements and, and you're famous and all these things. And uh, now he could afford whatever he had. And so for about two years, you know, he's able to kind of keep it from everybody. And in 95, it really became evident to me because we were in Rome and uh, for the two days prior to our, our first round match, I had no idea what he was going through. And he just, he, he said he was sick, didn't want to practice two days before. Then the day before our opening round, he didn't want to practice. And I just had a weird vibe because I was calling him, call this is before cell phones and everything. And I'm calling him and in his hotel room and nobody's answering. And all day, I was like, you know, if you're, are we going to play? Not going to play? Like, what's going on? Leaving messages. And so it was the, in the, it must have been three or four in the morning. I just couldn't sleep. And I just went down to his room and his door was a little bit open. All the lights are on. TV is blaring. And it was just a weird scene. He was in there smoking cigarettes and staring at me and not saying a word, just lying in bed. And he was just all jacked up. And that was the first time I was like, like, holy cow. Yeah. Like this guy is jacked up. There's, there's something, 
seriously wrong with this guy. And, um, you know, he kept on saying, I'm fine. I mean, I hadn't slept for, you know, two, three days. He was totally on a bender. And that was my first my discovery on, like, holy cow. And now, remember, every deal that we had, every clothing deal, every uh, endorsement that we had, was tied in as the brothers. Yes, of course. It wasn't a Luke Jensen deal or a Murphy Jensen deal. It was a Jensen Brothers deal. And we, we were playing the Italian Open, which meant we, we rolled in to, you know, the warm-up tournament and then leading into the French Open. And then, Baba, you know, it just kept rolling. And uh, I mean, you, you just don't hide. You can't perform. You can't practice. And you're playing the best players in the world. Yeah. And so uh, it was really weird because – at that time, there was no place to really turn. It's like, okay, how do you check into rehab in Rome? Or how do you check into rehab before the French and Wimbledon, the two biggest tournaments of our year, you know, and then you got a little break, but you got the, the U.S. hardcourt season and we're getting paid huge appearance fees to do that. I mean, your, your whole livelihood's wrapped around performance. And uh, when do you stop? And so – it was a it was a very tough tough road for years because um, it was just on on again off again with rehabs and going in going out. I mean, I would he was Murphy was living in Los Angeles. I'd fly to Los Angeles, get him out of a tight spot, put him into a rehab center. I'd be driving back to the airport. I'd get a call, and the the facility was saying, "Hey, he's checked himself out." We don't know where he is. I wasn't even to the airport yet because he was, you know, was over 18. He was an adult. He could do whatever he wants. Yeah. So he, he wasn't in a place yet to really stop the, you know, the snowball effect, the avalanche of what was going on. And so it was just basically our, uh, I had blown my knee out in 98 and I, we still played on fumes until 2005. And he never really licked it. He never, you know, he'd go on again, off again. And as soon as my knee blew out, we, we, I couldn't hold my side of the court. As you know, if you can't move on our sport, you're dead. Yeah. I mean, you're a sitting duck. And he, he wasn't good enough to cover my side at our, you know, McEnroe and anybody's a joke. McEnroe still needs someone who can move, who can put the ball in the other court, because I promise you, and we played McEnroe in doubles. You never hit the ball to McEnroe. You hit to the other guy. <laughs> yeah. And so, so you know, we, we ran it out, you know, the, our careers out in about 2004, 2005. But we were never the same, really, from, from 95 on. We were dealing with a lot of issues on his side and then my side physically with my knee. But um, do he you, figured it out. Do you have – any regrets from a selfish point of view? If you look at your, yes, your brothers, yes, your doubles partners, but at the same time, you know, you were an extremely talented, successful tennis player, NCAA champion, you know, world junior number one, you know, in singles and in doubles, who who could have, I would imagine, with, with a partner that was more engaged and dedicated to the cause, gone on and, if not won more Grand Slams, had a very successful career. Do you hold any of that almost regret and, and blame towards Murphy now? 
No, I mean, the, the, the thing with me, I, I made a critical mistake in 1985. 1985, you know, I'm kicking everybody's tail. I mean, Boris wins Wimbledon in 85, Boris Becker, boom, boom. And I had beaten him in juniors in 83. Patrick and I beat him in doubles in Winogretzky. Boris and Winogretzky in the finals of the French doubles. I mean, we were right there. And then in, in 85, I won, qualified at the U.S. Open, won around. You know, Edberg had already won a, a Grand Slam, like Australian. He was already moving in. I think he was top 20 at the time or, or top 10. And this was my age group. This was my sweet spot. This is before Agassi and Sampras. And um, I, I'm like 86. I respond and get to the second round of, I'm sorry, 85, 80, somewhere in there. I, I get to the second round of the U.S. Open main draw two years in a row. And I'm, I'm climbing up the rankings. And I'm off to college. Arthur Ashe, who was our Davis Cup captain in the United States, had told me to go to college that I wasn't ready to really turn pro. And if Arthur Ashe tells you something, you know, it's the voice of God, right? Yeah. And he said, your game is ready. But mentally, I needed to grow up. I went to college. Connors went to college. McEnroe. Johnny Mack went to college, like go for one year, go for four years, just get away from home, grow up, learn to be a man. And it was a huge, huge decision to make. I had endorsement opportunities. I was hot. I was an it guy. I could serve left-handed, right-handed. I was different. Um, and I was having a lot of success, not as much as Boris yet or Edberg, but I was like right on their heels. And I was serving big, 130 on both sides, um, miles an hour, not kilometers, miles an hour. How, how, so I, how? <laughs> it was a lot of practice. And, you know, there's, that's another story. But I was Jeez. right there. But what happened was at 85, after reaching the second round for the second year in a row, or really, I'd lost to Brad Gilbert in, in a really good, like he was top 20 in the world and seated. And I was like, man, you know, I was I, it was straight sets, but like I was competitive and I was like, man, this is great. I, I, all I want to do is learn. And what I made a huge mistake. I just wanted to learn. And it's like, I had this big, heavy tossman forehand, which is today would be kind of normal as we study the amount of rotations on the ball, you know, what Nadal does, what Jack Sock does, what a lot of these uh, spy tech does with her forehand, the polyester kids of today. And I went off to college and for five years, I lost my forehand and I was just, I was on my own. I, I didn't get it back till 91. It took me five years and I finally got it back and the great Jimmy Arias got it back for me. We we're on a rain delay tournament in Nice and I was just playing doubles and some qualities and singles and he fixed my forehand and then I won Monte Carlo the next week in doubles and then uh, finals, I think of uh, the Italian and really got going again with my career. But uh, my, my career really stopped there. The question you had with regrets about Murphy and everything, honestly, I wouldn't have it any other way. He learned a lot through the process. Um, he's helping people now that have guns to their head, that are looking to end it today. Today, like right now, this heartbeat, he's on probably a call right now with some guy or some, some girl who's looking to end it. And he's been there. I've seen him uh, in those scenarios where he shouldn't be with us. 
So what he's doing now for people is more rewarding. I'm so proud of him to the man he's become, the father he's become. Um, so what we didn't accomplish after the French Open, our journey is our journey. And you take all of it. Because if, if we'd have went another direction, I don't know if we'd have been the, the same. Um, we wanted to do it as a family. We wanted to do it as brothers. I, I'm very fortunate to have played all Grand Slams with all my siblings. I played a U.S. Open with my sister, Rachel. I played a Wimbledon with my sister, Rebecca. And I played all the Slams with my brother, Murphy. Murphy played with Rachel and Rebecca, I think, in Slams. So that was, it was always about that. It wasn't, you know, I mean, we wanted to be number one in the world. And you have those dreams and aspirations. But you get what you get. And whatever happens, you learn from it and you move forward and you're better for it. If you take the responsibility and the accountability of what you did wrong, how you can get better and you pick up whatever is left and you, you, you fix it and you move forward. And for me, I wouldn't have it any other way. And the Bryan brothers uh, were, were inspired by us. You talked about you know, you didn't talk about our forehands or our serves. You talked about the energy and our attitude. And we always wanted to play with that. And we still live by that. Yep. And the Bryan brothers picked up on that. They didn't pick up on our strategies or formations. They didn't pick up on, like, Roger picked up on Sampras's serve and this. The, the Bryan brothers picked up on our energy and, and how we went about signing autographs till the last person. It was about, about the game, about the fans, and about – practicing and getting better and that's to me that that is amazing that the greatest doubles team of all time took something from the Jensen brothers and moved it forward so I I have absolutely no regrets I am I am the happiest man I'm blessed beyond my wildest dreams well, you're a very special man, Luke, to, you know, to the way you're speaking on that. You really are. And I think it says so much, so much about you. And I think, I, I guess there's a couple of things that jumped to my mind. One, just to challenge it slightly is, is I guess, retrospectively, all of those messages become clearer, you know, and I'm a big believer that, you know, tennis players, if they can need to try and see where tennis fits into the context of their lives. You know, Jim Lair, Jim Lair, the famous sports psychologist talks about the hidden scorecard. You know, everyone yep. has a hidden scorecard and it sounds like your hidden scorecard was very much around family, family values, what you guys were going to do together, this Jensen tribe. Did you, or were you able to do that even in that moment when you were a bit younger, when you were in the middle of it, or did it cause some tensions when you guys were traveling? Well, it, it, it really tested it in the sense where who we were as a family. I mean, everybody chipped in on this. Uh, parents chipped in. Yeah siblings chipped in, uh, coaches chipped, everybody was trying to connect with Murphy and, and during those, those tough, tough days and, and help. But in the end, you can only do 50% of the work. You learn early on when you become a coach, when you turn from player to coach, the sooner you learn or the quicker you learn that you can only do 50% of the equation, that you can't run for them, you can't hit the extra serves for them, you can't lift for them. You can't believe for them. They have to believe for themselves. 
Yes. And so the sooner you start to understand that equation as a coach, as a parent, as a mentor, as an educator, man, you can really help because it, again, it, it comes down to them. They have to do the work. Murphy had to do all the stuff, the steps, the 12 steps in, in AA meetings and do the meetings every day. That dude, no matter where we are in the world, that dude goes to his meetings virtually. That dude does the work to keep him above ground, to keep him clear and focused on the right things because those things aren't, they don't go away. You may be able to deal with them and, and communicate with those fears and those anxieties better. Um, and, the, and it's our sport. I can never understand Murphy, how can you serve out a French Open? How do you serve that out? But you can't look at alcohol and look at drugs and go, man, I, I'm beating you today. I'm not, I'm not going to, you're not going to beat me. I'm going to beat you today. Yeah. But it was bigger than he could handle serving out a Grand Slam. He could serve for thousands and tens of thousands, a hundred thousand dollars. He could play for those kind of odds. It was, he was, it was his gift. He could play the biggest moment so well, but when it came to drugs and alcohol, he has to battle that. He's got to be, you know, clear because that battle is real. Those demons are real and that never goes away. No, He's got great people around him that, that help him to this day. And so when, when I talk to kids, I empower them. And I say, it's, it, it, I hear, you know, what do you need? to succeed. And they, I just need confidence. And, you know, parents say, if my son or daughter could just get some confidence, well, what does that look like? Cause I put it on them because until I find out what that means, that definition of success means, what does winning really look like to you? Yeah. What does it mean to you? Is it, is it winning $55 million? Is it winning grand slams? Is it beating Roger Federer? What is it? Because as soon as I know what the goal is and what it looks like, what the vision is, now I can help. And when they say, I just need confidence, I say, you've already lost. You're wasting your time. Yep. And they look at me so weird. Like, what do you mean? Like, what do you have to do to get confidence? What do you have to do? Well, if I beat, I beat so-and-so. If I beat Roger Federer, if I win a grand slam, like, no, Osaka is telling you right now, she's won four grand slams. She's got generational wealth and she's still jacked up in the head because confidence is choice. Your self-worth is choice. Social media doesn't determine my self-worth. Uh, uh, trophies don't determine that. Uh, my bank account doesn't. I do. Confidence is choice. I choose to go into the arena, into the battle, knowing that I am, I am worthy of the battle. I am worthy of everything because I've put in the time. I've sacrificed. I've suffered. I've done the running. I've done everything that I've done to prepare for this battle. And if I lose, I lose. But that's not going to change my confidence. What I believe in. I believe in myself because I've done all the work. And you know what? I could lose. But I'm not storming the beaches of Normandy. It's not life or death. And you know what? I get to go out and play again tomorrow. I get to play the tournament next week and I get to put myself into that arena, into that fire 
and test myself once again and, and work on the things that let me down last time, that let me down last month. And no matter what, once you accomplish something, the real competitor wants to win another one, wants to win again. And there's competition all around. Just look around the locker room. They all want what you want. But if you don't have confidence, if you don't have self-esteem, if you don't believe in yourself, doesn't matter how much mom and dad believes in you, how many lessons you take, who coaches you, how many people follow you on social media, you're going to lose at the moment of truth. You're not going to serve it out because you're going to have doubt. And remember, let's go back to 2019. If Roger Federer still chokes, if Roger Federer still can blow serving for Wimbledon, double match point on grass against one of his nemesis, Novak Djokovic, everybody will choke for the rest of their lives. That's the game. That's why we play to put ourselves at that moment of truth to see on this day, do we have it or not have it? And if you don't choose to be confident, you're not going to have it because a win can't give it to you. A tournament can't give it to you. Only you can give it to you. You walk in with confidence. You leave with confidence. You may not walk in. You may not walk out with the win, but you still have an appreciation for the pressure. You have an appreciation for the opportunity and you have an appreciation for the game. It doesn't define you. The win, the loss, the money, the trophies does not define you. You define you. I feel as if I'm I'm on your team, Luke. I feel as if I'm... I know, we're doing I, it, baby. I, I'm Let's a, do I'm, this. I'm a, I'm a world team tennis. I'm on your team. We're, <laughs> we're about to go out there and play the finals. You're getting me stoked up to go and run through walls for you. And it's, you know, and I, and I want to move now into that, that coaching side of, of, of the game now. And obviously world team tennis is something I actually, um, probably 20, probably 20 years ago now, when I was at LSU, we got invited up by Billie Jean King to, to trial world team tennis for, for colleges. So there was like the top, top eight colleges. We went up to Stanford and, and we, we played in this event, the, the exact format that is still played. And I absolutely loved it. It was amazing. And there was this, the stresses and the emotions and the ups and the downs and the, you know, it came down to the mixed doubles at the end. And there was always, you know, there was always something going on. And, and I really thought that would be something that completely took off. And it's something I like to follow each summer, but I, I, I want to get into why you think it maybe hasn't taken off as much as it has in a minute. But I, I, I want to take that point of you as being a coach talking about confidence. You said something earlier on in the pod around you can you can teach mental toughness so there's no coincidence that you've been the winning coach now for two years you you obviously just listening to you you're very good with people you get people you 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 have a way of trying to bring the best out of people so how do you go about bringing these these guys that are normally looking out for themselves on the tour you know some of them will be coming in full of confidence after winning some event or doing well and some will be coming in probably short of confidence and struggling a little bit with the tennis. How do you teach those guys mental toughness and how do you help them with their confidence to then go on and have the success that you've had? I, I was very fortunate. Uh, both my parents were coaches at the high school level. There was a lot of winning going on. They practiced every day. So I was a, I had a, 
a very strong influence, very similar to Jamie and Andy Murray, a strong female presence. They respect women. So I, I was very fortunate to be around uh, athletes that sacrificed, athletes that succeeded, and having a, a mom that, that coached and watched how she did things. My dad coached uh, football, American football and tennis, and he had lots of success and watching the work ethic and watching how they did things. Um, I also had uh, some college experience in the United States. I, after I finished uh, playing in 05, I think my last U.S. Open was 05, and then 06, I started coaching the women's tennis team at Syracuse University. Had eight years of that and was successful there. And then went on to uh, watch my brother coach the Washington Castles in world team tennis. And he had the Bryan brothers and the, uh, the Williams sisters, Serena and Venus. He had Hingis. He had Leander Pace. He'd had Sam Query. He had tons of megastars. And he won six world titles uh, with that. And, and watching him do it, I was honestly really jealous because he would have so much fun with those players. And he, I, you know, I'd be in those locker rooms and I'd be in those huddles and really get to listen because I was doing the TV for him. And uh, he would use, Murphy would use me as a sounding board. And what do you think of this? And get ideas. A great coach is also a great learner and a great listener. And if, if any coach says they know it all, just hang up on them because they don't know it all. We're still learning new concepts. And, uh, and you should be. You should be a life learner, drawing in and, and adding to your, your way and your approach. Um, for me, when I started coaching world team tennis, I was really given a tremendous opportunity because it was in New York. At the time, I was the director of racket sports at the famous Westside Tennis Club in Forest Hills, New York, the famous uh, home of the U.S. Open before it moved over right. uh, to Flushing Meadows in Forest Hills. And we still have the stadium and concerts and great players like, you know, that still come back and practice and, you know, labor and Virginia Wade and all, all the former Chris Everett, they still come back to, to see and, and hang out at the club. So it was a perfect fit because New York was looking for a coach and I was local. And it's only two or three weeks in the summer. It's not, it's not a really big commitment. And I remember going to my first press conference and Billie Jean King, who owned the league at the time, was also owner of the New York franchise. And we're in the New York media, which is pretty hot, and, and, and they can be pretty, pretty direct. And they're talking to Billie Jean King, and then they came to me, and they came to Billie, and said, what, what can we expect? What kind of approach can we expect from the New York empire? Because last year they finished last in the league. What can we expect? And so Billy turns to me, don't talk to me, ask the coach. And I had asked, you know, nobody asked me one question. Everybody wants to talk to Billie Jean King. So, so like the only thing I could think of was, and I just said, we're going to be awesome. We're going to do everything awesome. Everything we do, whether we win every match, lose every match, we're going to be awesome. We're going to have more fun than any other team in the league. Every time we step on the court, our main thing is to make sure that these players that are playing for their livelihood, coming off of Wimbledon, coming off of the French Open, a long play court season, a fast grass court season, they are tired. They're at the halfway point of their season right now. And world team tennis can either be the best experience they have 
or it can be a nightmare. And last year was a nightmare. Things went sideways. You know, when you're not winning, I don't care if it's the tour or world team tennis, you, you would get into the losing ways. It stinks and it hurts. College is the same. High school is the same. So I just start saying, we're just going to have more fun than everybody else. And you know what? We're going to be team awesome. And everyone started laughing and, and Billy was laughing. Yeah, we're team awesome. And it just stuck. And when I get, when I had the players come back and I was very fortunate to have our mutual friend, Neil Skupski, Neil Skupski had been through the battles with the New York empire. He was on that team was dead last. He was on that team that was, I think didn't win a match till the very end of the season, the year before and was through the chaos and all that stuff. But he, he stayed on the team. He, he could have easily pulled the plug and, you know, played Newport, Rhode Island, the Hall of Fame tournament, kept playing from, you know, other uh, prize money. He could have been uh, playing for points. Instead, he, he decided to really be the captain of our team. We had John Isner on that team, Sloan Stevens on that team in 19, uh, Kirsten Flipkins. Maria Sanchez was on our team from Spain. So we had a very unique core group of veterans. And, and Murphy told me, like, you need veterans. You need people who can get up first thing in the morning, don't need a lot of maintenance, and will go out there and get you games. You may not win, but you can't get blown out. And so Neil came over. Isner came over. I also drafted this young American, Ulysses Blanche. He's a flamethrower. This dude served like 140. But, you know, I, I just wanted Neil and the team. We did this team building event like two days before our first match. And it's one of these I spy things. And you figure out as a team, how, you know, the mystery. And they put you in these mystery boxes. And, and Neil and uh, Kristen Flipkins, those two, those two veterans, like, were amazing. They figured out they were loving it. Maria got involved. Isner was useless, but <laughs> I was useless. But those little team bonding things kind of set the tone. And, and having dinner that night saying, listen, you guys know how to hit your forehands and back. All I'm going to say is if I need to pull you because I need to get some more games and we're having a bad night, I'm going to pull you. Whether you're a marquee player, whether you're a, a doubles only player, whatever it is, it, my job is to, to win the match that we're playing, not to, you know, save somebody till tomorrow or anything. But the other thing is I want to have fun. I want us to have more fun. Than, I don't care if we lose every match, every point. We're going to have fun. And we are team awesome. We're awesome at everything we do. And it was all of a sudden I, I really tapped into something with these pros who play with so much pressure. Yep. Every Weak, and this isn't kind of like Roger and Rafa, and they're they're just playing for slams. When you're Neil Skupski, you're playing for every point you can because you don't know if you're about to be on a five tournament losing streak. You don't know if you're going to be on a five tournament win streak. You don't know. You are out there as a journeyman, and you are playing professional tennis, and you are you are just putting it together week after week, because you could lose first round and you can win a grand slam. That's part of it. When you are not Roger and Rafa and all these others, when you're everybody else. And I was one of those everybody else players. 
And I played to the point where every week had to be like a grand slam because I didn't know when my next meal was going to be, you know, the next opportunity for me to get hot. So during World Team Tennis, I was able to take that pressure off just for a couple weeks. And you know what? We slid into the playoffs in the first year and we got to the finals and I blew it as a coach because we were up by two games in the final set. And I asked Neil, Neil, where do you want to go to celebrate tonight? Oh, no. <laughs> and, and I just blew it. I just had too much confidence. I just had too much confidence. <laughs> I knew we were going to win. And then the next year, I didn't make the mistake. I got Kim Kleisters on the team. And then we made a huge, a huge trade in the middle of this, uh, towards the end of the season, going into the playoffs. And we got Coco Vanderway and we got Melikar, who's, uh, they were the best women's doubles team. And in that format, as you know, you got to dominate in, in doubles. Yeah. Singles, I mean, singles is fine, but it's only two of the three sets. Yeah. So we have this vibe. We have this, this like, we're going to have more fun. We're going to go for the lines. I mean, we, Coco Vanderway hit a shot. It was a sudden death shot in World Series last unbelievable. year. Unbelievable. You have to Google I, it. The listeners have to Google that shot. It was incredible. Match point 2020. World Team Tennis, Sloan Stevens had just hit an ace the moment before, the point before, at 5-6 in the breaker. Now, it's not win by two, okay? They play, like, big pressure stuff. That's the way Billie Jean wanted it for 45 years. So it came down to one point, the finals, $500,000 in bonus money for the team, the team that won it. And all I wanted was, like, I'm calling a – timeout you get two timeouts a set so i call my final timeout because i just didn't want to rush into this and coco wanted it right away she had just been aced by sloan stevens and bethany maddox sands who, who both of those girls are probably going to get in the with a couple more slams get into the hall of fame and bethany maddox sands is at the net so that's a really good like combination and formation sloan stevens serving who had just served an ace, Bethany Maddox-Sands. And Bethany Maddox-Sands, if you're a good doubles player, you're poaching. Like the biggest money on the line, like I'm, I'm crossing, baby. And Coco lays into a four. And all I told her to do was go for a winner. Just go for a winner. Like don't just put it in. Don't block it. Like go for it. And if we didn't have Hawkeye, we were sunk. <laughs> and that sucker was in by a millimeter. And that was four five hundred grand. So what does the runner-up get? What does the runner-up runner-up team get? Butkus, baby, Butkus. That was the whole point. Oh my! So you God. get your you get your money that you signed for, right? You get your yes. whatever you, you know you've signed, and you know coaches get four or five million dollars, which is fine. You know it's a it's a nice starter, <laughs> but the bonus money was you know winner take all, and that was the amazing, and all the players knew. Like, this is it. And I, I'm wow. telling you, Coco wanted it right. You just know. She's like, I got it. I got it. Like, usually, you know, we have a talk who wants it. Whereas, how do we want to set this up? And that's the great thing about World Team Tennis. The coaches and the players can be right on the court. It just adds to the sport and gives the quality so much better. It's fantastic. Man. I mean, can you imagine for 500000 you get aced. By, by a former U.S. Open champion. She just aces you, and you go, I got it. 
I got, I mean, that is confidence, baby. That's who you want taking the last shot. Yeah. And I'll bet, that I'll was, bet that you that was, was a good night. I bet you that was a good night after that. Oh man, it was <laughs> insane. It was, I mean, it was one of the most amazing. It was, it was more amazing, honestly, than winning the French because so much was riding on that one swing. You know, that one stinking swing. And uh, but and this is like, what tennis again, is. If we're talking about. And, and, and at the risk of going into a big long, because I'm conscious of your time, Luke, but in terms of we're talking about tennis potentially outside of Grand Slams. I think Grand Slams still brings it, you know, and I think Grand Slams still captures the imagination. You know, we see these five-set matches. We see these quarterfinals of the Women's French Open yesterday, 8-6 in the third set, 9-7 in the third set. You know, I think the Grand Slam still captures the imagination of the public. But Austria, Vienna 250 doesn't, you know, it doesn't. It's a, yeah. never, never mind ATP Challenger, WTA Challenger, ITF circuit. You know, we're, we, we, we are potentially in a sport that isn't going to last forever in terms of the demand against so many other things in the world right now. Yet... As you're telling me that story, I've got goosebumps. I'm thinking about it. I remember watching it myself. That is capturing the imagination of people that aren't tennis fans, that are just fans of excitement, fans of entertainment in sport. And it, it feels like there's a real big bit of space there that's missing because world team tennis isn't really showcased globally. You know, it's, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I'm a big tennis fan. In the States, it might be a little bit more. But it's it's such an exciting format. How does that? I guess it's a two pronged question. One, how does world team tennis grow? You know, even you've talked about it's in the armpit of the calendar. You've said that. You yep. know, it's straight after Wimbledon. It tends to be that kind of period where people are, you know, maybe going off to the Maldives for a week to reset for the, for the rest of the year. You know, so it's it's not in a great place calendar-wise, I would say. But then secondly, how, and this is the bigger picture question, how are we going to save a potentially dying sport? So here's the thing. If you can make me grand poobah of the game of tennis, because remember, we don't have a commissioner, right? We, we don't have real, we have a FIFA, we call it the ITF. But, you know, the Grand Slams run the deal. Right. We've, we've allowed the Davis Cup to fall to nothing. The, the biggest international sport of all time. At one point, that was bigger than the World Cup. Yeah. The Davis Cup was. And we've let it fall to pieces. Uh, the Grand Slams are the, the Mac Daddies. But we have every, every federation's got their thing going. The ATP's got their thing going. WTA's got their thing going. College tennis that you talked about has their thing going. Because there isn't one grand poobah to say, this is the definition of junior tennis, college tennis, professional tennis. And we have all these factions all over the place. I mean, you have the U.S. Open lost $350 million last year putting on that tournament in a COVID year. The Australian Open just lost $78 million to put on that tournament. You know, the testing and everything that went on. <laughs> Osaka made $55 million. How bizarre, you know, how weird is that math? And so when you talk about world team tennis, it's got to be important. It's got to go in the calendar, you know, and because the calendar has so many different powers 
at play, you know, people that are making money on the tournament in Bucharest or the tournament in the Philippines or that, you know, it's in, and there aren't that many marquee players to go around. People don't really want to watch number 18 in the world, even though number 18, whoever number 18 in the world is a really good player, but they'd rather see a replay of Serena Williams. I mean, here's the, I mean, this is, goes into another dynamic, but hey, close your eyes and imagine a world without Sharapova, without the Bryan brothers, without the Williams sisters, without Djokovic, Fed, Nadal, and Andy Murray. The greatest generation of tennis players ever to play the game. Ever to play the game. It's not even close. Who's Someone's going to win these slams. Someone, but are they, do they have the personality? Do they want to do the press conferences? Do they understand their role and responsibility to the game of tennis that is providing all these millions of dollars for the rest of their lives? Yep. And so to me, as Grand Poobah, we have got to reestablish our, our countries. You know, we have Davis Cup. Now the, it's the Billie Jean King Cup. It's no longer the Fed Cup. And we have, of course, the Grand Slams. And the Grand Slams with all this money, once we get back onto solid footing, making money again, they have to support the 250s and the other tournaments. And we have to really make a push to get tennis going. I mean, in, our, in the United States, it is up. I think it was uh, 7 million more people played during COVID because of the natural social distancing in our sport. But world team tennis, this is your time to strike. What I mean by that is, there's no other place in tennis that you can find diversity, inclusion. I mean, Billie Jean King's been in front of the curve with men and women playing on the same court. You did it. You just talked about it when you were at LSU. Yep. I mean, college tennis, this is the format you have to have. Six balls in the air at the same time. Imagine six soccer pitches next to each other, and you're trying to follow six games. You can't. You put world team tennis in college. You put world team tennis really in the calendar where there's nothing else going on. And then you, you play it out. You throw in Davis Cup where you represent your countries. And nowadays, you know, people, I and mean, you got the ATP Cup, like, what's that? You, you scratch the, remember the Hotman Cup was awesome. I had to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, 3.30 in the morning to watch Federer in the Hotman Cup play against Serena Williams. It's yeah. the only time it it's incredible. ever happened. It was, it was incredible. It incredible. Was. I'd also yeah. jumpstart the battle of the sexes, and I would make John McEnroe right now play against Serena Williams. Who wins? Who on wins? all four surfaces. On all four surfaces. That's just it. Now, McEnroe will probably pull a hammy at some point. He's still in great shape. It's two out of here's the thing. It's two out of three sets with a tiebreaker. There's no way he could play full three sets, but you know, he'd be pulling all of his stuff, right? He'd be going nuts. Even with Hawkeye, he'd go nuts, you know, because he's the master tactician. He controls momentum. All those arguments disrupts the other side. He's a, he's a master of controlling the momentum. So to me, you have got to find a place that men and women are not, are not represented by the WTA or the ATP we are one sport 
We are professional tennis. And our, our best business model is when men and women are on the same court at the same time, like at Wimbledon and in the U.S. Open, that's when we have the most eyeballs watch us. And if we don't get our act together, we're going to fall away. We really will. We are just lost in outer space. It's I'm here in the United States. I'm watching Roger Federer um, play his last match at the, at the French, right? A beautiful four set match. I had to go to an app. It wasn't even on the tennis channel. It wasn't even on ESPN. It was on some app by ABC, NBC that I had to pay four 99 for that's, Come on, man. If you're going to get the masses engaged into our product, you got to bring your stars to the people and there are ways to do it. But if, if we don't get it right and come together for the greater good of the sport, I'm telling you, we are going in the wrong direction. Attendance is going to be down. Ratings are going to be down. But this is so, my, my thing on it, Luke, as well. It's like, and this is what I love about world team tennis. And it's why I probably carry a bit of frustration that it hasn't taken off a little bit more because I've got three young kids, you know, uh, the, the grand slams can maybe grab the youth of today's attention by somebody coming yeah. in and watching the final set from three all, you know, and it builds and it yeah. builds this crescendo and it's, it's exciting. And the, especially when the crowd are going crazy, but in reality, they're not going to sit and watch the best of three sets. And I, I'm sorry, Vienna, that I'm going back to you again, but Vienna comes <laughs> into my mind, you know, it's nothing against Vienna. I promise you, you know, there's, there's, they're not going to sit there and watch two and a half hours. But I tell you what they are going to sit and watch is they're going to watch, if it is more accessible, they're going to watch the excitement of Coco hitting that forehand return on on a one-point-takes-all. You know, that that grabs imagination. And what that also does, and we've talked about our mutual friend in in Neil Skopsky, I believe that that, that World Team Tennis has been incredible for Neil, for for his confidence, for his feeling of belonging. You know, and and probably also in the public eye that people maybe get to know Neil Skupski a little bit more now. And we start to actually build some more stars. We don't just have our one, two, three stars, but actually number 60 in the world actually is somebody now. They're not just a journeyman who's number 60 in the world. You know, there's someone in their own right who, you know, people can relate to. And, and, and if we're able to get the sport in this format, I'm not saying that the sport needs to be in this format for 40 weeks of the year, but if we're able to find the right space that isn't the armpit of the calendar and we're able to market the hell out of it, you know, let's get you on those, on those, on that screen, Luke, speaking to everyone about it, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it can only be good for the sport. And I think we, we have to find space for a Netflix type tennis event or events that, that people are going to really dial into because that is the era that we're in right now. We, we can like it or lump it, but kids like to go on Netflix. Kids like to go on YouTube. Kids like to flick through Instagram. That's the world that we live in. So how do we bring tennis to those platforms? And if I, I agree with you, if we don't, we're, we're in some danger. Well, look, it's already happening in a successful way what the Labor Cup does. What I disagree with the Labor Cup is you don't bring the women in. I How do you not bring the women into that? that that's, you're, you're so short-sighted there. But if you're going to 
uh, you're going to pile event after event. Like, for instance, you don't have any other leagues going on, significant leagues going on during the World Cup. You don't have any significant, you know, things going on in, yeah. in basketball during the NBA playoffs or the NFL and all this stuff. You can't have we'll, – we'll pick on Vienna again. You can't have Vienna going on at the same time as World Team Tennis. No. World Team Tennis has to stand on its own. Davis Cup has to stand on its own. You know, I'm sorry. You have to go addition through subtraction. And I believe that these – and I know there's a big movement that the lower-ranked players have to get more money. And I'm thinking, well, then the lower-ranked players – have to do more clinics, have to do more media. You can't rely on three or four people no. to haul the mail for all these things. I mean, I was a player along with my brother, with the Bryan brothers, like we did all the clinics, signed all the autographs. Like if you're going to be 87 in the world, we're going to give you something to do to market you. Yes. If you're waiting for the ATP to market you, and to do your job, which is to build your brand, you know, listen, there's social media platforms now. Boy, if we had had that in the 90s, we would have been huge. Yeah. The, way, the way the players have platforms to put out their own message, to build their own brand. So to me, everybody has a piece of the responsibility to grow this game. Just because you're seventh in the world in doubles or mixed doubles, whatever. We have to make it so inclusive that everybody's part of the solution. Everybody in that main draw. I mean, I can go to the website right now on the ATP and the WTA, and I don't even have headshots of some of these players. I can go to the Grand Slam websites, headshots, bio information on the next juniors in the world that are coming. I mean, this is basic blocking and tackling. This is basic stuff, and we wonder why we're not growing. We're not doing the work. Yeah. We're doing the absolute minimum by worried about two or three players and everybody else just kind of picks up a check, plays their tennis. And it's, it's sad, but the bottom line is we don't have one main voice that says, this is who we are. We are professional tennis. We are um, college tennis. We are junior tennis. This is how we go about it. This is how we inspire the next generation. But it's just, we could be so much better. Our greatness is just beyond us because every, you know, WTA doesn't, you know, really work well enough with the ATP and vice versa and the ITF. And it's just, it's unfortunate. It's a great way to, to finish the pod. I think it's a great message. Um, I, I do have a quick fire round that we do on every podcast, if you don't mind. All right, bring it. So bring it. are you ready? I'm right. Rod Laver. I know you're bringing it. Go, Rod Laver. Don't even, it's not even a starter. It's right. not even a starter. Right or left-handed? Oh, good call. So I'm truly ambidextrous. I throw footballs and baseballs left-handed. I write right-handed. I kick left-footed. I golf lefty, but I putt righty. Doubles. So how messed up is that? <laughs> Very, yeah. but <laughs> doubles or singles? Ready? I love mixed doubles. Mixed doubles to me was so much fun because 
I, I got to play with Jennifer Capriati, Lindsay Davenport, Mary Pierce, you know, so many great players. I love that dynamic. It was just more fun than the other singles was always just like, I felt I was like gladiator going into the arena yep. and one of us was going to die. Doubles was fun because it was more team and it was with my brother. And we just, we were always looking for a fight. It got, it was fast and furious, but mixed doubles was more fun. ATP or Davis cup. Davis cup. Davis cup. I was a orange squeezer. I was a practice partner and, 91 and 92, we lost in the finals in an unbelievable match against France. Sampras played, Agassi played, um, and we lost. Next year, we added this guy named John McEnroe, who has a, you know, got a, uh, a chip on his shoulder, got an edge to him, and he was the difference when we won in 92. So that it's Davis Cup. Hard courts or clear courts? You know, you always love what you uh, won on. So it's give me the red dirt. Give me a <laughs> Uh, a really garbage day that it's like snowing in Hamburg, raining in Paris, and d- don't give me good weather because then Lacan or some guy's going to come out feeling good hitting winners. Give me the worst conditions, lots of wind, and I that can use that as a weapon. Roger or Rafa? Well, uh, you know what? I, I love uh, Roger. I would teach students how to play like R- Roger because – You have so many more tools, but for the fate of the planet, an alien is come down and they're the best player in the galaxy. And they want to see, you know, who's the best player down, who you, who you put your life on, who you put the fate of the planet on, put it with Rafa. And if we, if we're home team and we get to choose our, our surface and our venue, I think Chatre would be a nice little venue for the (laughs) alien to come and enjoy a little clay court tennis um rafa the bottom line is is that when it's all said and done you have to dominate your era you have to so for me one match in my generation was pete sampras he retired connors mcenroe becker edberg agassi chang courier and he he got the best i think he has a winning record against roddick and I think, you know, he played, it was that glorious match you can see on YouTube between Roger and, and Pete. Roger was young, Pete was older, and it was a great five-setter. But Pete beat all of his nemesis, all of his main rivals. He retired them. Now, Rafa won the one big match, 2008 at yep. Wimbledon. Roger's home stadium, home surface. Roger's never beaten Rafa in Roland Garros. That's a, that's a big game changer. Rafa has a winning record against Roger. Djokovic has a winning record against Roger. You have got to dominate your nemesis, your era. You've got to dominate. So to me, it's it's Rafa. I love your answers, Luke, but I'm going to have to give you a little slap on the wrists because this is quick fire. Ooh. This is quick okay. fire, man. Oh. Wait, what quick fire is it? 30 seconds is a minute? Wait, you know, come on, podcast. What's, what's that ESPN show where they have the they have the buzzer? They say a topic oh, and yeah, they have yeah. a buzzer. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I told, yeah, yeah. I forget yeah, yeah. that I forget it, but medical timeout or not, should players have a medical timeout or not? Okay, I would say here's the thing. Not, but this is my proposal. You know how Formula One teams or NASCAR teams, they have the whole pit. 
They have a pit crew there. I want the coach on the sideline. I want the trainer on the sideline. I want the stringer on the sideline. I want players to be able to come to the sideline and then they're mic'd up and they're getting their grip changed, their shakeology, their nutritional, they're getting stretched out, rubbed up. I want a whole team on the sideline. I think that would be amazing. Every one of these players is making huge bank. You lose first round of a grand slam, you're making $70,000 yeah. to lose. They got the money. Let's make the game cool. Absolutely love it. Wimbledon winners. Who's going to win the Wimbledon female championships this year? Oh, that's a real good. You know what? I'm going to go with Serena Williams. Yes, I'm, I'm she, on Serena. She, she, you know, had enough match play. She always plays better, in my opinion, when she's angry, not off the boil, but when she's got that kind of edge to her and she's looking for revenge. She still has the best serve, first and second, in the women's game. Best speed, placement, and second serve kick, which no one can really attack. That is the difference for me on the women's side. And the men's Wimbledon champion 2021? Djokovic. I just don't – I mean, Djokovic hits the ball so deep. He's so precise. If you're old enough to remember Chris Everett, she was just death by placement. And the length of Djokovic's shots is so well. He serves bigger than the average bear than he gets credit for. And, of course, his return is legendary. And he just he just mentally is so good on every surface. So Djokovic is the best player on the planet. Pound for pound, surface to surface. What's one rule change you would have in tennis? A rule change. Like, I'm really big on putting more personalities on the court. Allow coaching. I want to see the whole thing on the sideline. Coach, the thing that drives me crazy is they're all coaching. Yes. Everybody's coaching. It's not – if you're not doing it, then you're – it's an unfair advantage for the other side. Either enforce the rule or allow it to happen full board. Not a – I mean, this whole thing with a changeover, I coached a player – who was uh, they were playing qualies at uh, Family Circle Cup, the Volvo now in, in Charleston. And in the qualies, and I was like, they said you get one changeover a set and they call you. And I'm sitting there and all of a sudden she calls, she, you know, hey, I want my coach. You get nine. What can you tell somebody? It takes me like a minute to get down from the stands. I got 30 seconds and you know what they're calling you. It's a major like trauma situation, right? Yeah. They're not calling you when they're winning. They <laughs> and so I, I just let it go full, but allow the coaching, mic up the coaches. They have to talk in English so we can understand what they're saying. So you bring the audience closer to what we're doing, or at least use technology. Remember, now let's go back to the game. How can the women's tour not have a title sponsor? It's the most popular. Uh, women's sport professionally in the world. These women professionals are making millions of dollars, but the, the tour does not have a title sponsor. We're not doing a good enough job promoting and using various technologies, whether it's coaching via text, coaching via Skype. We've got to draw more fans into these huddles, into them, into what's going on on the court. You never hear from these players. If I hear one more player in their pre- match like interview they're about to go on the court 
So you're about to play Novak Djokovic on center court Wimbledon. What are your thoughts? I want to play my game. And I want to have fun. I want to play my game, playing my game, having that's No, man, I'm going to attack his body backhand. If that doesn't work, I'm going to go short. Give me something. And then we don't hear from them because they get slaughtered and they go off into – I want to hear from the loser. I want to hear from the winner. I want to hear all of it. That's interesting. It We're is, not yeah. interesting enough right now. I, I agree. And that, that the last question that we ask every guest, Luke, is who should our next guest be on the podcast? Oh, that's a good one. If you want to get a really good interview is Brad Gilbert. Brad Gilbert, to me, the brains of the game. If you re- I, I learned so much because I've worked with him at ESPN and we do these team calls every, every week. We get on team call and it's Chris Everett and it's Cliff Drysdale and it's John McEnroe and Patrick McEnroe. But Gilbert has, he really is. Read his book, Winning Ugly. It's unbelievable and get him on and I can help you. Well, that's what I was about to say in the in the emails that we went back and forth for the WhatsApps in the small print you signed up to answering that question and being accountable for getting that person. So you have to so pass Neil, it. So Neil Neil Skupski put me down. He put you were the one that he passed the baton the baton gets passed. So you have to I pass the Neil. you have <laughs> you have to pass the baton to Brad. And then we then we keep it moving. We keep it moving. Okay. We, we keep bringing these amazing okay. stories. So we're going to do that. We'll, we'll hook you up with Gilbert. The other thing is, is Neil then for the fate of the planet, okay? If we're going to be more green aware, if we're going to save the planet, he has got to, and I've gone to the United Nations to do a resolution on this. He can't use as much hair product, <laughs> gel in his hair for matches. I caught him one time, only once, chipping out his hair. I said, like, dude, you're killing the planet here. You're killing it. And let's go back to a great family in tennis, two amazing stories, two LSU Tigers, Ken Skupski, Neil Skupski, two of my favorite people in the world. Neil's my captain. He's my rock at the New York Empire. He's the first person I put on. We don't pay him enough, and I hope he wins many Grand Slams because he's getting close, and um, I'm, I'm so just blessed to be uh, his coach in, uh, on the planet. Well, look, I'm blessed to have spent the last hour and a half with you, truly. Your, your, your story, your energy, your enthusiasm, your kindness, you know, it, it all comes through loud and clear. You know, I really do hope one day I get to meet you in person and to, and to spend some time around that energy and to talk to you a little bit more. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. All the very best of luck. Uh, I will be in touch on Brad because I would love to get him on the show. But I want to say on behalf of myself, all the listeners of Control the Controllables, a big, big thank you. Dude, you are the best. Hey, Murphy's story is on YouTube. Look up Murphy Jensen Heroes Tennis Channel. So we'll put all it's that a good all little story there. on Murphy, how he has changed lives by changing his life. Amazing. And one day I'd love to get Murphy on the show to tell his story as well. I really oh, that's easy. That, he'll, I mean, again, you got to ask him for at least 10 grand because he's, you know, he's loaded with cash now. He's big money, man. <laughs> Top man, Luke. Thank you very much. See you, buddy. Wow. 
mid-50s and still a rock and roll star, even on, even on a podcast. Uh, the energy that he brought from the word go. I hope you all enjoyed it and took lots away. And as ever, Vicky next to me and what a character he was. I'm still smiling. I really, really enjoyed that. It made me laugh so much. <laughs> Great stories. He definitely has to win longest quickfire round though. <laughs> He's smashed that out of the park. But I know you pulled him up and I was like, don't tell him off because I'm loving the stories. <laughs> Well, at that point, I guess I, I I was thinking a little bit about the listeners. I know sometimes <laughs> these podcasts can go on a little bit, but hopefully it's worth listening maybe in two installments to this one because uh, he, he truly did, like you say, put a big smile on the face. Um, great storyteller and, and just goes to show that it's not, not everything's perfect in the world of tennis as well. And I think that he so openly shared those stories. I think it was fantastic. Yeah, and I imagine as a coach or just a friend, he'd be an awesome motivator. And my mantra the next couple of weeks is definitely going to be confidence is choice. I think I have a I have a couple of things to pick up on that. One, I think it's interesting to me that Luke hasn't worked with an individual player. You know, for me, certainly the way that he is seems perfectly suited to team tennis. You know, I think bringing that high energy you know, really, like you say, motivation is, is I think, his, his big, big strength. And I think that's shown with his world team tennis success and the players going into that environment. They're ready for fun. They're ready for energy. They're ready to go and rip big forehand winners on big points. Whereas maybe a, a, a tour coach is a little bit more strategic, a little bit more downplays things a little bit more in the background. And I would just be, I'm not saying he can't do that, but it's just quite interesting to me that his skills so far as a coach would seem to match up to the team environment. I would love to see him given a chance with a player on the tour and I'd be really interested to see how how that would go. And and I have to pick up then again on the, the confidence is choice. And I've, I've thought a lot about this the last few days and it's, I'm not convinced I agree with it. And I I believe that commitment is choice. And I believe that confidence makes it easier to commit. But ultimately, if somebody isn't confident, they're not confident. And and I would imagine some of the listeners are listening into this thinking, well, I, I can't just make myself confident. And, and I would have a saying that commit without confidence, if it is... If it is an, an example for me, I'm not a big dancer and I'm not very confident in dancing and I can't just all of a sudden pretend that I am. But what I can do is take that one step onto the dance floor and commit to that one step. And and from there, maybe confidence can start to grow. And I think as tennis players, it's a big one to be able to do that. So that would just be a one that maybe I'll get Luke on to discuss that in, in finer detail another time. Uh, but I certainly like the concept of making a choice and making a choice with how you act. And and like I say, just for me, the wording of that would be how you act and how you commit, whilst internally you might still be having some doubts and fears. I massively disagree. You know why? I, my dad, when I was younger, I was so, so, so painfully shy, couldn't make eye contact with adults, couldn't speak in public, absolutely hated it. And even walking into a room full of people, I'd always be kind of like dead quiet in the corner. And he would say to me, just act, just act. You don't need to be confident, just act confident. 
And after a while, that will just become your normal behavior. And I still do that to this day. I was at a massive party full of people I didn't know, obviously not in the last year or so. And every every bit of my body wanted to run out of the room and just drive home. Um, but I kind of like, right, I'm gonna go in there. I'm gonna pretend that I'm absolutely fine. And I'm really confident. And I walked up to people, sat down at a table, and acted confident and within 20 minutes I was absolutely fine um so yeah I I do disagree with that I think, I think it you're is, saying it the same I think you're saying the same thing that I'm saying because for me confidence is something internal and and what you've said there is you didn't feel confident but you but acted. I chose to be you chose to commit to something you chose to commit to a way of being which then through time maybe brought confidence, you know, and, and look, it's play, it's playing with the words and the terminologies a little bit, but just for me, I think a lot of people will associate confidence with an internal feeling that they have. So I think if if you say to someone, just, just be confident, you can choose to be confident, I actually think that can almost grow a bigger fear and it can become a bit of a monster and it can take over. Whereas if you go to, okay, you don't have to be confident right now. However, why don't you just commit to this one, two or three things, which is the is, is the acting bit, then you will get yourself to a level playing field and then from there then confidence will build because look this is a tennis podcast and I think I think when we're talking about tennis there's people out there that we know that at times people aren't confident they're not they're, they're, they they don't have that same feeling of stepping up to the line they've lost their last five or six matches there's going to be a lot of internal feelings that they're dealing with but the ability to go out there, good body language, commit to good body language, commit to something on the court, you know, that ultimately is where success will come from. And from there, confidence will then come from that ability to start winning matches, doing things a little bit better. And it's, a, it's an interesting subject. It's a one again, I'd love to get to, to Luke to speak a little bit more about this. But I just think we have to be a little bit careful to almost say to people that lack confidence, Stop being so silly. Just make the choice. Just be confident. I don't quite think it's as simple as that. I think this is one we'll be debating for the rest of the day now. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And, and and I do think that's what these podcasts are about. You know, there's somebody gives opinions, someone gives their their story. And then I hope that it is thought provoking for everyone. You know, it certainly has been thought provoking for me on this one. And, you know, we don't have to agree on, on, on every single thing. And you guys at home don't have to agree on every single thing. But we just really hope that it gets you thinking a little bit deeper about different parts of the game, different parts of the mind, and, and hopefully help shape your philosophies a little bit more as well. I loved his World Team Tennis stories. I haven't watched any World Team Tennis, I don't think, since we saw that match in Newport Beach, which would have been 2011. And that was such great fun. We had two tiny children. I think Matthew was six months, Alexa was one and a half. We were able to take them in courtside, watch the match, great atmosphere, great environment. Um, it was interesting what he was saying about accessibility to watching tennis on our tellies. That's something that I would love to be able to sit at home and watch. Yeah, and again, I don't really know where it is on in Europe. I think it's it's on the tennis channel, I believe, which again hasn't seemed doesn't seem to have that much accessibility here in Europe. And and I think we all agree it's it's a 
it's a brilliant event. It's something that, you know, I'd certainly love to be on Luke's team. You know, imagine how fired up he'd have you for going <laughs> yeah. out to playing playing those sets. And I think all the players that get involved absolutely love it. But it just seems to carry a little bit of a, a joke's the wrong word, but it doesn't seem to quite carry the the right relevance of where it fits into the cal- calendar. And that's obviously one of the things we spoke about is, you know the date. You know it's in the, it's in the bookend of of the calendar, the armpit of the calendar, straight after Wimbledon, before U.S. Open, where it tends to be a time that players will have a little break and recuperate, ready to go for the last last push in the season. If we are serious about something like this being a part of our calendar, then it needs to be looked at. But it goes back, and we're not going to solve that on this podcast, but it goes back to the age-old issue that there's so many fingers in the tennis pie and everyone's unfortunately not quite working working together. Uh, but until then, we'll have to just keep enjoying it. And and certainly next summer or this summer, I'll be I'll be searching the TV to see where see where we can watch a little bit more of it. And I'd love to see Luke and Murphy back on court together. I remember racing through Wimbledon to watch them play on one of the outside courts. I just they would they just stood out so much, didn't they? You know, you had your Edbergs and your Ivan Lendl's at the time, very pristine. And then here they came with their bandanas and their long hair and their energy on the court, bouncing around. They were so entertaining to watch. And the real deal. I mean, proper tennis players. Proper tennis players. You know, we're not talking about two two players just coming onto the scene and making some noise, but not actually performing. And you know, even Luke world number one juniors in singles and doubles you know a, a serious tennis player 1993 french open champions but then really i guess and this would be the the big message that i would take from the podcast tennis really is not the be all and end all you know and we say it all the time you know there's there's so many other aspects to life and there they are picking up the trophy Luke's on one end, feeling like a million dollars, just won the French Open title, and and holding the other side of the cup is his brother, who is who is going through hell, and without him knowing. And this this message of we never know what other people are going through, so we just have to be kind to everyone that we can, is is never been truer than in this situation. And we'll put the link to um, the documentary about Murphy's story, which Luke mentioned. I loved how throughout the episode, he kept saying this is their family sport. It's all about the family. I hadn't realised that his twin twin sisters had also played at Grand Slam level. Amazing achievement for them all. And he did credit his parents as to why they had all done so well. So there's there's a whole other you know, conversation we could go into about that in itself. But we would love to hear what you think about the episode with Luke. You can get in touch with us on Instagram at ctc.podcast or you can email us at info at sototennis.com. We've had a lovely message here from Paul Aitken who says, love the podcast. It's amazing and a breath of fresh air because of your honesty and authenticity, Dan. The podcast with Marcus Daniel was fantastic. I'm regularly telling every coach I meet to listen to your podcast. Keep up the amazing work. And doesn't that just make it so worthwhile doing these podcasts? A big thanks to Paul and to all of you that keep sending your messages in. We we appreciate it massively. We really do. And we've got lots more guests coming your way. I'm going to share a couple of little names to get you excited. Jim Lair, 
the famous sports psychologist and Craig Tiley will also be on in the next few weeks. So many more coming your way. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables. <laughs>